1: Today, on Something You Should Know, too much noise can make you irritable and less generous. I'll explain that. Then, when it comes to achieving a big goal, a lot of people do it all wrong.
2: It turns out that most people, when they're trying to start something new and achieve a big goal, look for the most effective way to get there. A small minority of people, though, look for the most fun way to pursue their goals. And it turns out that is more effective.
1: Also today, what not to do so you don't have bees buzzing around your face this summer. And a Nobel Prize winner explains what life is,
0: and how we're all made up of billions of cells. Well, they're tiny, tiny things. But you know cells can get much, much bigger. In fact, if you had a, an egg this morning for breakfast, you might be surprised to know that that is actually a single cell there.
1: All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Ooh, wonder who that guy is. I don't know. You know, we, we paid someone to put that little intro together and when it came, it had that little whoo in it. Don't know who it is. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. We start today talking about Noise. Noise noise can be tricky. One person's noise is another person's music. But one thing that's for sure is noise levels are increasing, and that is a problem. Although noise isn't likely going to kill you, science has shown that it does have some unusual and often negative health effects. Prolonged exposure to loud noise can leave you fatigued, irritable, and unable to concentrate. And although people can adapt to noise, they never get completely used to it. Noise can increase your heart rate, your blood pressure, and your breathing. And noise can promote learned helplessness. Children given puzzles in moderately noisy classrooms are more likely to fail to solve those puzzles and more likely to give up early. And this is interesting. Noise can make you less generous. In one study, people were less likely to help someone pick up a bundle of dropped books when the noise of a lawnmower was present. And that is something you should know. If you want to reach a goal or achieve success in some area of your life, you can always find success gurus who will offer their advice of how to do it. Often, though... Their advice is based on their experience or what they believe are the secrets of success, which may be fine for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best advice for you. What I find much more compelling are the steps to success that have been studied and proven to work for a lot of people over and over again. Not just someone's opinion of what to do to be successful, but real proof that if you do this, you're more likely to succeed. So meet Katie Milkman. Katie is a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She's host of Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast called Choiceology. And she's author of a book called How to Change. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much
2: for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: So there are a lot of people and a lot of theories and strategies about how you should try to reach your goals and find success, yet people still struggle. They're still looking for that magic way to reach their goals and find success. So clearly, there is no magic path. Seems like just a lot of theories and ideas.
2: I think one of the things that has made change so hard for people traditionally is that there's this sense that if you just sort of pick the right shiny idea off of a bookshelf, for instance, you'll be able to figure it out. So, you know, set big audacious goals is one catchphrase that's popular, visualizing success. There's all these different gurus and books out there that suggest what might help. And a lot of those ideas aren't bad. And some of them even have some basis in research. But um, what they all get wrong and what I've seen over and over again in my career, talking to people in organizations trying to promote positive change among their employees, talking to individuals trying to create change in their lives, is that there's this failure consistently to actually match the tactics you're deploying to try to create change with the barriers that are standing in the way. Most of the solutions that we use are sort of like a one-size-fits-all along the lines of what I just described. But I found that change comes much, much more easily when we tackle exactly what is holding us back. It's not a one-size-fits-all. If you're if you're not taking your medication because you forget, there's a really different solution than if you're not taking it because it has an unpleasant side effect. And even though you know it's really important for your long-term health, that side effect makes you so uncomfortable you're not willing to do it. So we need to think about what is the obstacle and then use the best science to overcome it.
1: You often hear the phrase, the sentence, if you believe it you can achieve it or some variation on that and i i've always thought that you know that's a little bit too simplistic that it, it it doesn't really get to the heart of it doesn't do anything it's just if you believe it you can achieve it but you can't achieve it by just believing it
2: i i would agree with that but i do think believing that you can accomplish something is part of the formula for success for most people so it's not that that's Garbage. It's just that it's typically not enough, and it's often not the big barrier to change for people.
1: So, so give me some examples of of how this gets put into practice.
2: Let me tell you about one idea that I find really valuable, which is based on research I've done and research by at Fishbach at the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley at Cornell. And the idea is, and the insight is, really simple. It turns out that most people, when they're trying to start something new and achieve a big goal, look for the most effective way to get there. That's what we all do. We say, you know, my big long-term goal, say I want to work out more regularly. I'm going to go find the most effective workout I can do at the gym to burn the maximum number of calories and get fit as fast as possible. A small minority of people, though, look for the most fun way to pursue their goals. And it turns out that is more effective. And if you actually encourage people to pursue goals in ways that are fun rather than ways that are focused on that sort of big effective strategy. They persist longer. So people enjoy say doing Zumba, they're going to come back to the gym for a second workout. But if they do the maximally painful stairmaster, master, it's going to be kind of miserable and they won't return. So, Um, if we can find ways to make goal achievement fun, that's one really powerful way to overcome a big barrier to change, which is that often doing what's good for us in the long run isn't super pleasant. That's That's a major challenge for a lot of us. And we focus too much on trying to expand in our mind, oh, it's so important though. And here's why it aligns with my values. And I just need to believe in myself and not nearly enough time on actually engineering ways to make it more enjoyable. So you won't procrastinate. So you won't dread it. And you'll actually dive right in.
1: Well, what happens when the goal is something to stop doing? So the, the, mm. it isn't like you're trying to find something fun to do. You need to stop eating so much. Well, so yeah. you don't find other things to eat. Well, maybe you do, but, but,
2: but, but <laughs> I was going to say eating a funny one. You can't really stop eating. Actually, it's one of the more challenging ones. Well, you I still need to so. eat. Right. Um, so actually eating is, is a very good one where Make It Fun can be valuable, this, this sort of insight, because trying to throw out all of the junk food and eat only kale and canoa is not likely to be sustainable because the taste is, is lacking. Well, some people have excellent recipes for those, but <laughs> it, in my kitchen, the taste doesn't turn out to be quite as delightful. So it can be really important when you're trying to pursue a change in the domain of diet. To make sure you actually find healthy foods that you like eating that taste good, not just the ones that will trim your waistline as fast as possible. It also needs to be something where you'll get some joy out of the consumption. So if that means you reach your goal a little slower, but you're actually eating things that you find taste good, you're going to do better. So I actually think eating is a good example, but but I totally take your point that there are some things you just want to cut out. For that, I'd say there's research on really the flip side of what I've just been describing when it comes to tackling these goals that aren't instantly gratifying. So I've been talking about using the carrot approach. Let's make them more instantly gratifying. But there's also the stick approach where you actually create and impose restrictions on yourself um, in order to help you achieve a goal you care about in the long run. So my favorite example from research is a study that looked at people who were given access to a commitment savings account. So a savings account that had the same interest rate as the standard account they had access to. But if you put your money into this account, you wouldn't be allowed to take it out until a predetermined date that you chose or a predetermined savings goal that you set for yourself. And there was an experiment where half of people were given access to a standard savings account where you could take money in and out anytime and um, encouraged to save more. And the other half were given both the standard account or this commitment account and could choose how to distribute money between the two. And over a year, the group with access to that commitment account where they couldn't pull the money out saved 80% more than the other. Now, not everyone put money into the commitment account. Only about 30% actually chose to use it. But that 30% saved so much more that it led the whole group savings to balloon to 80% more of what someone who could take money in and out was able to achieve. So that's, that's one example of a commitment device. And I could talk more about others if you want, but they're really powerful ways that we can try to restrict or prevent ourselves from doing things that aren't so good for us in the future.
1: I think people have heard, and I'd like to know what the research says, that whatever your goal is, Doing it with someone else, having some accountability to someone else will increase your chances of success.
2: Absolutely. So research does support that, and accountability is actually a form of commitment. So it's it's similar to the idea of, for instance, imposing a fine on yourself if you fail to achieve a goal, which by the way is something people can literally do. There are websites like BeMinder and stick.com where you can go put money on the line that you'll forfeit if you fail to achieve a goal and then choose a friend who will hold you accountable. Um, and then you get dinged and that money goes to like a charity of your choice. You can choose one actually you hate, right? That supports a cause that you disagree with to make it maximally painful. So that that would be an extreme form of accountability. But even just telling someone else, this is my goal, get, hold my feet to the fire if I don't achieve it. There's some really interesting research on accountability being used as a persuasion tactic. So one study looked at mailings sent to people telling them that all of their neighbors were going to find out if they'd voted or not, because it turns out your voting record is public and the people who had sent the mailing were going to look it up and share it. And they actually proved they could do that because they sent in this mailing where they're giving you a warning. They sent the voter registration records and and voting records for everyone in your neighborhood for the last couple of election cycles and said, we're going to send this to everyone again with an update. So vote, your neighbors will find out if you don't. Um, first of all, people hated this. So I actually don't recommend it at all, but it, it was incredibly effective. There was an eight percentage point increase in the number of people who turned out to vote in the group that received this mailing relative to a control group, which is, I mean, for a single piece of junk mail to move voter turnout that much is absolutely astounding. So it just shows you how powerful it is to feel watched and like your neighbors are going to find out whether or not you're doing the right thing.
1: Well, it's kind of creepy, actually. But it's,
2: it's totally creepy. That study is totally creepy. I do, I'm, I'm not endorsing doing that. Rather, I think it's really interesting research to point out how powerful accountability is rather than uh, something we should suggest.
1: We're discussing proven ways to achieve success and reach your goals. And my guest is Katie Milkman, a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book, How to Change. something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Katie, one of the yeah. things that's interesting to me about people and their goals is I know a lot of people will talk about something they want to do, but they never start. And, and I always think Maybe the fact that they never start is a bit of a red flag, that it really isn't a goal. Like, they think they should lose weight, so they tell people they're gonna. But they never actually start the process. They never do anything. And the yeah. the, the starting, I mean, the starting is the hard part.
2: Getting started is a huge obstacle for many people. You have this vision, you intend to do it, but you actually have to get over the hump and and start moving so um a lot of my research actually over the last decade has focused on this getting started problem i i got interested in it after visiting google to give a presentation about some of my work on how we can encourage people to change uh, for the better when it comes to you know making better decisions about health and wellness or productivity or um, even savings choices and i got this great question from an hr leader at google which was okay katie we're completely sold that we should be using these tools to help encourage our employees to make these good decisions. But is there some time when it's ideal to send out the tools that might help them reach their goals? Like, are there moments when people are particularly eager to get that information? And I remember the moment vividly because like a light bulb went off. I was like, what an amazingly important question. And I don't think there's an answer uh, that's known to academics. So I ended up going back and studying this for years. Um, What my collaborators and I found actually the first part, you'll be like, "Yeah, I thought of that." The minute you said it, because the first thing that came to mind for us, which was, I think, is somewhat obvious, was New Year's is a moment when people are particularly motivated to pursue their goals. But what we ended up discovering is that New Year's is just actually one well-known example of a broad category of moments when we feel like we are facing um, a new beginning and we have a bit of a blank slate sense. Like, you know, last year the old me couldn't do it, but the new me this year is going to be all over it. And we're more likely to step back and think big picture about our goals. We're more likely to feel optimistic and disconnected from those failures. And um, so those moments arise whenever we open what we think of as a new chapter in our lives. So it can be small, like the beginning of a week turns out to be a fresh start, Um, start of a new month, celebration of a birthday or a holiday that we associate with new beginnings like Labor Day. Uh, And also there are more substantive new beginnings. So I've just described dates on the calendar. The start of spring, for instance, is another one that that can motivate people. And on those dates, by the way, we see that people search more for the term diet on Google. They are more likely to visit the gym. They're more likely to create goals on popular goal-setting website.
1: I wonder how many people who achieve some big goal that they've set for themselves Did it the first time or the second, or it took like five or six false starts before that it really kicked in. And stopping smoking is probably like the 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 example that comes to mind. But I wonder, other big examples, is that the case?
2: Yes, you have exactly the right model. That change is comes in fits and starts. There are setbacks. Um, One of the biggest lessons, but from my career, I would say, besides the lesson that I started with, which is like, let's actually figure out what's holding you back and suit the solution to that. So that's like lesson number one, up on a pedestal. But I'd say lesson number two is recognize that failure is inevitable. It's just a part of the process. And then build systems that are expecting failure and accommodate failure and help you get back up after a misstep. So for instance... I've done research on habits and how to form the best kinds of habits where we were really sure that the best habits would be very, very, very consistent, very rigid, sort of same time of day, every day kinds of habits. And what we found is that those habits are brittle. And the best habits were instead habits that expect things to get in your way. There's going to be an obstacle. You're not going to be able to make it to the gym, say, at 7 a.m. as you planned, but you have a fallback plan. And so you still go anyway. So. Um, Rigidity and uh, and feeling like you've, you've you have to give up after you have a failure are the kinds of things that derail change because there's inevitable setbacks.
1: You mentioned writing things down. How important is that? And, and if it is important, how important is it to write them down the right way, whether it's a series of small goals rather than one big humongous goal or anything about writing things down that
2: helps? I wish I could say that writing things down was a magical solution that would have this huge effect. That is not supported by research. I I think what um, research does suggest is important is um, that you make a concrete plan and then that plan comes with a trigger cue. So it can't just be, you know, I will uh, practice my Spanish on Duolingo a lot. It needs to be every night at 6 p.m. when I get home from work for half an hour, I will spend time on the Duolingo app and I've put it on my calendar. So that's sort of a writing it down digitally kind of activity. And the the thing you might be writing down there is what's the date and time. Um, I did one study where we showed that prompting people to write down the date and time when they would get a flu shot, when they were sent a reminder by their employer to show up at a free flu shot clinic, and, and they're not being asked to mail us back, just prompted to write down the date and time and the privacy of their own home. That significantly increased the number of people who showed up for a flu shot over a, a message that conveyed all the same information but made no prompt about making a plan. But we don't think it was the writing it down that was important. The, the sort of bundle of evidence that led us to try this intervention was all around how important it is to have a concrete date and time plan when you want to follow through on something.
1: What about willpower? That seems to come up a lot in conversations about setting goals and achieving goals. People use it as an excuse. You know, I I don't have enough willpower. I just don't have the willpower to do it. And, you know, my experience with willpower, especially in things like, you know, watching what you eat and whatnot, it seems to be a perishable commodity that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at not eating junk in the morning, but as the day goes on and as the evening rolls around... Yeah, uh, temptation is a little easier to give into.
2: Well, there is certainly some evidence suggesting that when you're truly fatigued, it's harder to do the things you know are the right things to do. I, I did some research on doctors and and other and nurses, caregivers in hospitals, and and the thing they're supposed to do is sanitize their hands whenever they enter or exit a patient's room. And we looked at how over the course of a work shift, there's just this like linear downward trend. It, they just, they're, as they get more and more tired, as the shift goes on, they, they do it less and less and less. And the busier the shift, the faster they stop doing it. Um, so, th- you know, that's one piece of evidence, but there's other evidence too suggesting fatigue does make it harder to do these things that we know are in our best interest. I mean, my big lesson, and I think a- any researcher who studies change would tell you the same thing is that willpower is really hard to muster. And the less we can rely on it, the better. You want to create the situation that sets you up for success. And the situation that sets you up for success is one where you never need to use willpower, um, where you've you know, made it delightful to do the thing that's best for you, where you don't have those temptations in your path. Um, and so you don't have to use that very difficult to muster willpower.
1: The thing that's most interesting to me uh, from what you've said is is this idea that people, when they have a goal, they think they have to, to be virtuous, it has to be difficult. And, and that, it, in fact, if you make it fun, um, you're more likely to be successful. But, they're, but somehow adding fun into it takes away from the seriousness of the goal, which is why, I guess, people try to tough it out rather than make it fun.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting hypothesis. I don't know if that's I don't know if it, if people don't make it fun because they feel like that takes away from their accomplishment or because they don't think they don't think to do it. Um, the research that that I mentioned earlier suggested that just telling people choose the fun activity at the gym or, you know, choose the fun foods when people are making choices about how much to eat of a healthy food Um just telling them that is enough to, to help. And it's more like the insight is lacking. We don't think we need it because we're pretty sure we we can just sort of muscle our way through. So I think the misperception is more around, um, that we don't think it's necessary, but, but maybe there's also some stigma associated with, with it, like not just pushing through. And I hope we can dispel that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're right. Because, because when people think of, exercising they just think it's horrible so they they don't even think well how could we make it fun they just think it's horrible and the same with dieting you know that means i'm eating you know kale and brussels sprouts they don't think well maybe there's other things you could eat i mean never no one ever thinks to think that
2: and that i think that's part of why we have so much trouble changing when when the the thing we're trying to change is inherently unpleasant i will tell you that when i was a graduate student i had these kinds of problems i lived binge watching TV instead of doing my homework. And I couldn't get myself to go to the gym. And I ended up engineering something that I, I still use today. And I've even studied that I call temptation bundling, which was, I only let myself enjoy indulgent entertainment while I was working out at the gym. And I'd find myself craving trips to the gym to find out what happened next. And, you know, I actually got really into audio novels, like the Hunger Games and the Harry Potter books, but some people do it with TV. I would want to find out what happened next in my latest book. Uh, I wouldn't even notice the time passing at the gym because I was so engrossed, and I didn't waste time at home anymore when I should have been doing my problem sets. So, um, you know, it's just one example, but I think there's lots of ways we can make things fun, and then and feel really good about it at the same time. And and I I hope uh, my research will help people see that.
1: Well, it's an interesting message, and in, in in a way, seems so obvious that you know if you want to achieve something. Make it easy as possible to achieve it, and you're more likely to achieve it. And yet somehow that eludes us, but it's good to hear that the research supports that. So make it fun, and you're more likely to be successful. Katie Milkman has been my guest. She's a professor at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And the name of her book is How to Change. And you'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Katie.
2: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and it's lovely to meet you, and I look forward to hearing the show.
1: Here's a question. What is life? What does it mean for something or someone to be alive? Well, I happen to have the perfect person to answer that question and discuss Sir Paul Nurse has several titles and honors to his name. Perhaps one that stands out is he won the Nobel Prize in 2001 in Physiology or Medicine. He's author of a book called What is Life? Five Great Ideas in Biology. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
0: Hi, Mike. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you.
1: My guess is you don't have a real quick, snappy answer (laughs) to What is Life?, but I'll ask anyway, what is the quick snappy answer when someone asks you, what is life?
0: It's a very complicated question to ask. And one of the reasons why it's been a bit intractable is because it does not lend itself to a simple dictionary-like answer, which is what one really would like. You know, if you were asked what is an atom, you would say it's the simplest structure of matter, for example. Life is more complex. It's more A matter of having a range of attributes um, which lead to something that's living and so cells are
1: are kind of the i i don't know would you call it the foundation of what life is right
0: is more or less well the first thing to say is the cell is the simplest entity that exhibits the characteristics of life i i sometimes quip and call it um life's atom Uh, the basic structural unit of life, but actually the basic functional unit of life. So a, a, a cell is definitely living, and therefore, if we understand how cells work, we are much closer to understanding how life works. And so everybody knows
1: that cells are these little tiny things, but just how tiny are they and how many are there in my body?
0: Oh, yes. Well, they're tiny, tiny things. If we, if we can talk in metres, if you don't mind, <laughs> they are maybe uh, 10 micrometres to 20 micrometres. It can be much larger than that, but m- most cells are often of that order of size. And a micrometre is a millionth of a metre. But you know, cells can get much, much bigger. In fact, if you had a, an egg this morning for breakfast... You might be surprised to know that um, that is actually a single cell there. Um, they can be very, very big, uh, but are usually much smaller, as I've just said, in millions of a meter.
1: Everyone has heard that you know, we're sh- constantly shedding cells and replacing
0: cells. Well, where, do they, where do the new ones come from? Well, cells come from pre-existing cells. This hasn't always been known, but a, a cell arises from a pre-existing cell by the division of that, let's call it a mother cell, from one to two. And so there's two daughters, and um, that goes on ad infinitum. Now, if we look at our skin, which is probably what you were re- referring to, these cells do slough off. They sort of die and, uh, and um and and slough away from our body, but they're replaced by new cells that appear from underneath the skin, or just within the skin, uh, produced by this process of cell division. And cell division is the way that all living things grow and reproduce. And it also happens to be the problem that I've studied in my research life um, for, for quite a number of decades.
1: Well, when you say cell cell division is the or division is the way all living things reproduce, we
0: don't. Oh, well, do you know we actually do? It's a part of that process, in the sense that cell division produces the sperm and produces the egg, and then that sperm and egg fuses, which is probably the point you were making, to make um, a, a new cell because each of those. Uh, two cells, sperm and the egg, have only got half a genome, a haploid genome. They then make a complete genome, a diploid genome, and then that single cell divides repeatedly many, many rounds of division to make ourselves. cells. So that's what I meant when I said we reproduce by that. We start by being a single cell and then um, we form by many, many rounds of cell division to make, um, uh, first of all, an embryo, and then a fetus, then a baby, and then you and me. Is there an easy explanation
1: that I might understand as to how we have all these bazillions of cells in our body, how they all communicate and rely on each other?
0: Well, it's a crucial uh, part of understanding life, really, particularly of a more complex organism such as ourselves, because we behave as an interacting colony of cells, by which I mean these cells interact one with another to generate a formally independent acting object, ourselves. And everything we do is a consequence of the interactions between different cells. And you ask, how does that happen? Well, it it happens in a variety of ways, but essentially... Chemicals are being produced by one cell and they're being detected by another cell. And usually there are specialised molecules, proteins, on the surface of a cell that um, associate with molecules produced by another cell. Sometimes this communication um, occurs through, essentially, electricity, as it does in our brain cells. But the basis of that is still um chemicals and um chemicals and molecules reacting with other molecules
1: so i've heard i'm sure everybody's heard this that that over you know the course of a certain amount of time days months years all of your cells in your body are replaced is that true
0: yes it is true um that cells are constantly being replenished it's like you know the old philosophical statement about you never step into the same river twice Um, Because the the river is there, it looks the same, but it's a flow of water, um, which means it's constantly replenished. And although this is very difficult to sort of comprehend, we are made up of molecules and components now, most of which have been replaced from when you existed, say, several years ago. And yet we still think we are the same object, yet we're not actually made up of many of the same molecules that we were uh, a few years ago so it's it completely correct what you say and frankly don't you think it's quite extraordinary yeah well it, you know what well one
1: of the reasons that it seems so odd and counterintuitive is if let's say you have like a a mark or a freckle or a birthmark or something that never changes even though you tell me all my cells are gone and these are all new ones but they're all new in exactly the same way
0: I know, it's one of the great wonders of, of, of life. I mean, you, we have a particular shape, you have particular coloured eyes, your ears, your tongue, your fingers all look the same to you as they did 30 years ago. And, but in fact, what makes them up is quite different. I really think it's helpful to think of a river uh, if I'm in London here, if I look out at the River Thames, it looks the same as it did a year ago but, or a day ago even, but it is completely different because of the water flowing through it is completely different.
1: So what is a gene and how is it different from a molecule or a cell or a, what makes a gene a gene?
0: Well, the gene was my second idea that I, I brought up as a Uh, uh, important for thinking about what life is and a gene is a molecule but it's a very special molecule it's the way in which heredity is maintained across generations from one generation to the next generation um, from a mum and a dad to their children for example and um, what genes do is um, they they are passed on like sort of coding machines. And they are passed on through the sperm and the egg in in, in animals and um, through the equivalents in plants, which are pollen and, and ovules, for example. And they encode how the offspring will operate. I mean, it's more complex than that, because how we operate is an is a interaction between our genes and the environment and how we've been brought up and so on. But um, it the the genes play a major role there. And it turns out I'm rather short. And I have blue eyes. I'm a little bit on the fat side. And um, I still have lots of hair. And all of these will be influenced by my genetic makeup. And Everything, in fact, that we do will be influenced to a greater or lesser degree about them. And it's the way in which um, continuity is maintained across generations. And of course, it's dependent upon the molecule that makes up genes, which is uh, deoxyribonucleic acid or DNA, um, which is one of the most famous uh, molecules, certainly of life, that we know of.
1: When you look at this at the level that you do, does it make you think more or less about this isn't all just a random accident that there's some higher power, or or do you not even en- let that enter your work?
0: Well, this gets us into another of the ideas of evolution by natural selection. The concept that we are evolving beings that we that species change and that this is brought about by natural selection this is the great ideas of of, of da- charles darwin and um some of his predecessors does provide an explanation as to how genes working within cells can produce wonderfully complex animals and plants and fungi and so on that operate with purpose that um, can grow divide, occupy different lifestyles and habitats and so on, without invoking a creator of some sort. It is quite difficult to imagine how life first started. But once life was there, once there was a single cell, and once it had genes and a hereditary system, then it it is very plausible how that can evolve into a bright that life form into much more complicated ones. How it first came about is a, is really quite difficult to imagine. There are ideas about it, but since it happened on the planet Earth three point five billion years ago, but it is one of the um, the great mysteries that people do think about. Um, but um, I don't think we yet have a good explanation.
1: Is evolution, as you look at it, is it efficient? in the sense that it's always reacting to something? Or would we have evolved into something even if we didn't have problems that evolution helped to overcome, if my question makes sense?
0: It does sort of make sense. I think um, what I'd say about that is it's a mistake to think that evolution produces perfect adaption. Uh, In other words, we shouldn't look upon ourselves as being perfect. We shouldn't look upon um, the cells that surround us in different organisms as being perfect. What we are is uh, um, functional. We work. It, 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 it's, uh, we survive, we can grow, we can reproduce. And we tend to think, because perhaps we're too egocentric maybe, we tend to think we must be the highest apex of of, of life, Um but it, it isn't true. I mean, all it really means is is that, that we can survive and we are reasonably effective and we do work, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't evolve into something else that was more efficient, that could make better use of food or um, could think better or could run better or whatever. All of that is possible.
1: But we have evolved to where we are because we had to overcome certain things and some people made it and some people didn't and the ones who did reproduced and made those people. Isn't that basically evolution?
0: It is basically evolution by natural selection. That is correct. uh, And you summed it up very nicely there. And that's been going on for an enormously long time. I mean, I I mentioned already that life first appeared on the planet three and a half billion years ago. And evolution by natural selection has been occurring all that time.
1: From your perspective, the way you look at life and what is life, do you make a distinction between life that has a conscience, a consciousness, and life that doesn't? Or is that not a distinction?
0: Well, I think this is a difficult question. And i got to be honest with you. In my little book, I consciously decide not to discuss consciousness But we know that consciousness has arisen. We feel conscious. It's a consequence of our brain and how the brain works and perceives and manages information. But quite what it is, it's really quite difficult to to describe. We know we have it. We know we're self-aware. We know that uh, we feel a, um, a sense of self. And these are um, very important characteristics of being a human being. I described meeting a a large gorilla in a Ugandan forest and um, sitting next to it and remarking upon how similar we were. It was like we were having a conversation, looking at each other's face, looking into those deep brown eyes, and somehow we were communicating. And I'm sure that uh, great ape, had a sense of consciousness, I don't think when I look at a daffodil that it's quite the same. Um, (laughs) I think this is something that arises with a brain and the nervous system and organized as it is in the great apes and ourselves. But somehow the chemistry of life, which is complex and important for understanding life, generates a brain which leads to self-awareness and it's another one of these like the origin of life which i said i i don't really know how that happened we can speculate but not much more nor do we know yet how consciousness consciousness arises or for that matter quite what it is
1: when you step back from all the work that you've done and clearly you won a nobel prize so you must think about this a lot What's the one thing that really just fascinates you about this?
0: Well, it is this question that I've tried to address. I mean, which is what is life? It's the fact how I I think what is fascinating for me is, and even looking at this simple life form of a single cell, let alone ourselves, of how this purposeful behavior that can lead to the growth and maintenance of this living thing that allows it to um, reproduce itself and to make two living things and to undergo um, this evolution, how does this all arise but it is highly complex, highly elaborated, highly regulated and ends up producing something which is uh, behaving as a holistic entity. And although we might emphasize the chemistry in the molecules, so it's very reductionist um, in, in um, that type of explanation, it is only by those molecules working together in a holistic way that produces um, the behavior of the organism as a whole. And that, for me, is absolutely extraordinary, that lifeless chemistry can be turned into life.
1: And once life is gone, you can't get it back, even if you have the same chemistry.
0: No, isn't that interesting? I mean, it makes you think about things like the spark of life. Um, you, You know, whilst it's organized, whilst it's functioning as a whole, it's alive. Once it stops functioning as a whole, once it stops interacting within itself to produce purposeful behaviors, you get disintegration and death.
1: It's like Humpty Dumpty. Once the egg falls.
0: <laughs> yes, it's like Humpty Dumpty. Very good, Michael.
1: Thanks. Yeah, all the king's horses and all the king's men. Couldn't put him back together again. Sir Paul Nurse has been my guest. He's been explaining what life is in a rather interesting way. Paul won a Nobel Prize in 2001 for his work. He is author of the book, What is Life? Five Great Ideas in Biology. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Paul.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for the conversation.
1: Don't you hate it when that lone bee buzzes around your head and just won't go away? If it's hovering around your head or orbiting your aura somehow, it could be your perfume or your shampoo or even your clothes, according to bee expert Debbie Hadley. To a bee, some of us look like or smell like a big, beautiful flower. They obviously love sweet or flowery smells, and bright colors can really catch their attention. So if you know you're going to be outside, you might want to dress in khaki, white, or beige if you want to avoid attracting bees. Think about what beekeepers wear. I mean, when I think of a beekeeper, it's usually somebody dressed in khaki with that big thing on their head. And consider wearing a hat, too. Also, be aware that bees are drawn to the color black. Avoid wearing anything with a sweet or flowery scent. And if you're eating, well, you know, that can be a problem, too. Wasps and bees are going to want in on that sweet treat you're eating. And if you're drinking a soda, well, they love to climb right into the can or sometimes sneak into that straw, so check before you sip. And that is something you should know. If you enjoyed this episode of Something You Should Know, make your feelings known. Leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts would be a good place. My recommendation. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know